Hello and welcome to The Methods Cafe, a podcast series focused on social legal research brought to you by researchers at Sons University plus guests probably. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. My name is Sarah Gray and I'm a lecturer in cyber threats at Swansea University School of Law. And I'm Yvonne McDermott-Reese. I'm a professor of law at the Hillary Rodham Clinton School of Law at Swansea University. Brilliant. And this podcast is aimed primarily at our master's level students, although of course we welcome all, all listeners. We'll be bringing you some discussion on different aspects of social legal research, including research design, methods of data collection and analysis, ethics, communicating research results, securing funding for your project, all sorts. All the fun stuff. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Brilliant. So Sarah, just for our listeners from outside of Swansea, maybe you want to tell us a bit about the module? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, a big welcome to all our students. In this module, we're hoping to help you develop an understanding of research methods and ethics that you can take away to undertake your own research projects, as well as, I guess, evaluate uh, research outputs when you come across them. But we are quite excited about this module because it's the first time that we're bringing together our students on the MA in Cybercrime and Terrorism, the LLM in Human Rights, we have our MA in Global Challenges student. So we have all of these programmes that we run here at Swansea School of Law, and we're bringing all these students together for this module. So yeah, the live sessions will be a fantastic opportunity, I think, for for you all to, to meet a wider range of fellow students who are all undertaking postgrad studies in you know an area of kind of current critical significance you know be that human rights or cybercrime terrorism other global challenges so yeah i'm really excited hopefully we're all going to kind of learn from each other in, in, including us you know teaching the module because it, it's such a wide range of perspectives absolutely I mean, I'm really excited to meet you all. And um, as Sarah mentioned, this is the first time we merge the, the cohorts from these distinct master's program. Um, and, you know, I thought I had certain aspects of it kind of covered, <laughs> but actually opening it up to new cohorts has made me think, oh my goodness, like just to give an example, I was working on my um, materials earlier on ethics. And then I thought, oh, my goodness, we've got all these cyber terrorism students. So there's a whole new ball of ethical issues to consider here. Everything yeah. around the prevent duty and, you know, making sure people don't get into trouble with that. And yeah, it's um, it's it's really exciting that we have this chance to bring you all together and to learn from each other. Yeah. So we hope the podcast will kind of complement our live sessions and activities. And uh... yeah, and I think a big benefit of the podcast is just kind of shining a light, hopefully, on some of the benefits of doing socio-legal research methods and, you know, maybe thinking about innovative research methods outside of the doctrinal analysis that law traditionally was known for. And um, Sarah, I know yeah. you've done some really exciting things in your own research. Um, do you want to tell us a wee bit about some of the methods you've used? Yeah, absolutely. That was a great segue. I'm so impressed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess, you know, my past and, and, and I, I guess my current research as well 
Um, two two things that I think um, I, I, I I tend to think about when I'm thinking about methods and answering research questions are um, uh, I, first of all multidisciplinarity in a way, or or I guess um, uh, not being uh, too um, prescriptive about the the methods, thinking about the question first and thinking about methods from my own discipline, but also other disciplines that may be useful in, in answering my questions. And another element is has been uh, co-production in a way, and by that I mean working through research questions and and um, uh, and you know, developing methods in kind of collaboration with, uh, uh, you know, real people out there, you know, outside of academia. So one, one, one example has been some of my research on cybercrime uh, victimization. Um, very interested in uh, experiences, how victims experience uh, victimization in this kind of digital world. Um, and that includes traditional cyber crimes, you know, like hacking and things like that, but also these these crimes that are increasingly um, that increasingly have a digital element. So there's quite a lot of cases of, for example, uh, coercive control and kind of domestic violence, that sort of thing that involve technology more and more. Um, and of course, we know, you know, with uh, uh, recent events, you know, hate crimes do you know on the online social media online more general uh, but social media is playing an increased role in those sorts of crimes um yeah so in that context i, I you know i've worked closely with with law enforcement to to kind of um make the most of crime data so i guess administrative data is is one source of data that i've used in my research uh, in the past um, and that um, has enabled me to use both kind of quantitative, some more statistical methods, but also qualitative methods, you know, looking at some of this unstructured data that the police collects on victims and their experiences. Um, I've also used, you know, more traditional survey data, you know, the crime survey um, crime surveys in, in, in England and Wales, but also, you know, in many other countries, they're a very rich source of data. So I've used that before. Um, and, it, you know, more recently in a current project, actually, that we're running, we're doing uh, focus groups with people who work to support victims um, to help them overcome the impact of being victims, basically. So we're doing focus groups with these practitioners and also interviews with victims themselves. So that's, again, like a completely different type of, of, of data. Um, and ultimately, we're going to use a method from computer science in this project, um, because we, we are, we're going to try and develop a tool that's going to help practitioners. And, and so we're using this idea from computer science, which is the, the co-design, you know, co-design of, of technology. Um, so, you know, so I try, I try to, to be open-minded basically about research methods and types of data and um, uh, yeah. And can I ask, um, I had, so I have one question on the findings, I suppose, so far and one yeah. on, on the methods. So um, on the findings, is there, is there something different about the way 
people experience victimization um, when it comes to cyber crimes? I mean, I'm thinking about things like, I don't know, I, I'm only assuming, but that like hacking or falling victim to some sort of online scam, that there's a sense of being sort of violated in your own personal space because this happened via devices that you use to like call your family or is is that something you found that the experience of victimization is different when it comes to these kind of crimes yeah i suppose there's a lot of other crimes where people also experience that sort of invasion of their personal space and they feel um a complete kind of loss of control over you know their own lives but I, I suppose the issue with these uh, crimes as they move to the digital space is that those impacts are not as well recognized. So whereas I suppose if you're burgled in your own home, there is a there is a, a, a wider recognition by victims themselves, but also by those who within the criminal justice system and beyond who are kind of who respond to the situation there's a much better understanding of what being burgled means as opposed to, say, being tracked through your mobile in some way. So I, th- I think perhaps the experience of victimization, there's a lot in common between online and offline, but we haven't quite got to the point where the online experience is recognized as, as, being, yeah, as being as serious, I guess. Is there is there a sense where I suppose victim blaming happens as as we well know in all sorts of uh, physical uh, crimes? But is there a sense that this you know oh how how could you be so stupid to give away your information or how could you yeah. allow someone to track you or you know does that happen with these kind of crimes? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And uh, one of the uh, themes that's actually coming out from these recent focus groups is the extent to which people are very embarrassed when they are victimized in this way. So they they actually blame themselves, never mind. (laughs) So the victim blaming is kind of internalized in many ways. And quite often the practitioners find that they haven't told anyone about what's happened to them. So they won't tell their friends and families because they feel so embarrassed that it happened to them. Yes. So fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, You mentioned that you looked at some unstructured data um, collected by the police. Forgive my ignorance. What is like what what do you mean when you say that unstructured data? Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, you're probably more more you probably come across a lot more unstructured data in the context of analyzing, say, cases and stuff like that, because I just mean data which isn't in a neat database. So. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was thinking about the uh, the notes that the police take on the description of what happened to that victim. So they just write whatever they think is relevant in whatever format is relevant within this free text box, if you like. You know, and that's in contrast to the fields that they have to complete when they take a crime report that creates a nice little database of something for yeah. comparison yeah I can I can see yeah, yeah. how that would produce challenges in trying to analyze um yeah if you've got big volumes of unstructured reports yeah interesting so I guess why I think all of all of this is is important I think first of all is is, is this idea that all of these 
areas that we're researching they they are complex and they you know there are a lot of challenges and i suppose you know from the from the global challenges perspective that is absolutely the case all of the things you're looking at are, are global in nature and and i guess there's at the same time there's this oversaturation of information out there and i i really need that we need this kind of robust evidence to to be a part of building that evidence base that is not just <laughs> noise <laughs> yeah and i think you touched on something earlier which is that when you have these big complex problems no single disciplinary answer is going to solve them right and and i think this is a, a, yeah. an inherent part of the whole global challenges masters program is that we need these are big hard questions that we need uh, interdisciplinary innovative techniques to first of all, to gather the empirical um, data to, to inform our proposed solutions, but also to, to understand yeah. these problems, actually. You know, you can't just view anything really to do with human rights just through the narrow prism of the law. You know, you have to look at the broader, um, the broader consequence of, of it. Yeah, and I guess in another seamless segue, I think, <laughs> or, or perhaps this could be a feature of the Methods Cafe, actually, having some sort of hot off the press feature in the podcast. Yeah, maybe we need to do from music um, for this. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. <laughs> What's new? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so next up on the Methods Cafe, it's time for hot off the press. <laughs> The part of the episode when we talk about some exciting research-related news and continuing on the theme of interdisciplinarity, I guess, in, in, in this case, we don't have to look very far because, Yvonne, you, you have some pretty exciting research news as you've been awarded uh, one of these hyper-competitive European Research Council starting grants. So for your project TRUE, Trust in User-Generated Evidence, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about, you know, the, the aims of this project, how it came about, what it's all about. Sure. Yeah. So um, just for, for people who aren't familiar with the idea, so user generated evidence, what we mean here is um, evidence gathered by ordinary people, usually on their smartphones and things like, you know, and then often posted onto social media. Um, so uh, we're seeing this kind of evidence having a huge impact in accountability processes for human rights violations. Um, you know, UN commissions of inquiry, fact-finding missions are using this kind of information to, to draw their conclusions. Uh, the International Criminal Court is introducing it into cases and several cases in domestic jurisdictions where we have allegations of war crimes or crimes against humanity have used um, user-generated evidence. Um, and I've actually, well, since 2018, um, I've been working on a project called OSR for Rights, which was all about how can we harness this kind of evidence for accountability processes. Um, and in the context of that, I noticed a strange thing started happening that um, every time I presented on this research, 
someone would ask a question about deep fakes. So deep fakes are AI generated, super realistic um, audio, video or, or uh, sound recordings that are created using machine learning. So perhaps we could have seen this Tom Cruise TikTok that went viral uh, last oh, year. Yes. <laughs> um, there's one of Barack Obama, which I seem to get asked a, a lot about. So this was created by a, a film director and it's Barack Obama warning of the dangers of fake news saying like basically soon it'll happen that you won't be able to believe your eyes and um, but it is itself a deep fake so yeah so people start to ask well you know okay it's great that we can use this kind of evidence now but you know as these deep fakes become more widespread more realistic and, and more accessible for people to create um, are we in sort of a golden age um, for user-generated evidence? And it struck me that this was based on a, an assumption on all of those things that, you know, um, first of all, the deep fakes would become so widespread and so accessible that anyone can just create a fake video of, you know, an airstrike or some other war crime. Um, it seemed to me that that was an exaggeration of what the technology actually can do. Um, but I was also conscious in reading the literature that there's this this big um, line of argument that said, oh, the biggest danger of deep fakes is probably not that fact finders will come to rely on deep faked footage, but actually that um, people building these cases will will um, self censor and that, uh, you know, real footage will be dismissed as possibly fake, so better not use it. Um, and, yeah, you know, yeah, it struck yeah. me, OK, well, that may well be the case, but we we don't know <laughs> because no study has actually ever empirically tested those questions. So true, the project aims over the next five years to examine exactly what the impact of the rise of deepfakes is on trust in user generated evidence. So looking at both lay fact finders and professional fact finders. Um, looking at under what conditions is user generated evidence perceived as being more or less trustworthy and how can we use those findings to inform practice in this area. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so exciting. And I, I know that you are drawing on various different disciplines and very different methods, uh, you know, in your, in your planned research activity. What sort of research, how, how are you collecting data to, I guess, answer these know, questions, answer the questions, test these propositions? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we have in the project three, I call them, it sounds very posh, I call them investigation clusters, <laughs> but basically yeah, three, yeah. three strands to the research. So the first is um, legal. So looking, gathering information on cases that have used user generated evidence and assessing to what extent narratives of um, deep fakes or, you know, alleged forgery have come into these cases. So there's a lot written about um, these authors called uh, Chesney and Citron have written about the liar's dividend, that the person who is responsible for atrocities is going to be more easily able to invoke allegations that no, this is, uh, you know, an elaborate fake. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I've tied this a bit to, to ideas of epistemic injustice, who gets believed, you know, and it falls back to 
the yeah. the people who are in the least position of power are called on to show that their footage is real whereas you know um perpetrators can sometimes seamlessly invoke oh well it could be fake um so yeah so that's one side of it the legal analysis side the second is carrying out um experiments large scale online experiments with ordinary people just to assess things like well, what is you know public knowledge uh, of deep fakes what is public understanding of deep fakes and how do certain factors be it age or you know technological competence or uh, other factors how does that feed into trust or lack thereof in this kind of evidence so playing a piece of evidence and then assessing how these different factors play into the perceived trustworthiness or otherwise of user-generated evidence um, and the third, and I'm really excited for this bit, is um, we're going to do some mock jury trials. Um, so, wow. yeah, co carrying out a full simulation of a case um, where you've got this really central piece of user generated evidence that the prosecution wished to rely on. And so then we'll have defense counsel arguing why, why it shouldn't be admitted. And then if the judge says, OK, it's admitted then, you know, it's up to the jury to to reason, basically, and look at that um, piece of evidence. So <clears throat> I think that would be really interesting because it it provides an interesting counter against those on, the online environment. Let's see what people do in a more realistic um, kind of scenario. And then there's some interviews with judges and fact finders from UN uh, human rights missions. But uh, yeah, that's the that's the more sort of bog standards methods. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like you're going to be very busy for the next five years. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And we'll have an interdisciplinary team. So there's myself, there'll be a postdoc who's got um, a PhD in psychology. Um, who'd be leading on that second investigative cluster and then three PhD students, um, one law, one psychology and one linguistics. Um, so the linguist would be able to analyse transcripts from those jury deliberations and, and draw, yeah, look at sort of what sort of terms people use. What does that tell us about perceived trustworthiness or otherwise in evidence? And how does that map on to some of the legal concepts of evidence? So authenticity, reliability, um, you know, and I could see, I hope at least, that some of those findings might be important for judges when they're thinking about how to instruct juries on evaluating evidence. So, yeah, lots of interesting data to collect and analyse. Yeah, yeah, and it's so important to actually understand how these concepts work in practice because it might all be very you know fair and just on paper but you know if 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 it doesn't match with people's perceptions and if um like you say you know the instructions to a jury uh, don't match those perceptions then they, they can't be effective essentially <laughs> um um so yeah 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 it's, it sounds like there's going to be a lot of opportunities for, um, I guess, both, you know, re students who may be interested in this area, um, but also potential collaborators or stakeholders to kind of get involved, um, in, you know, through, through, throughout 
absolutely um, yeah we've got an amazing yeah. advisory board so um one of the organizations that's done a lot of work in this space is witness uh, they're the video as evidence ngo so we have someone from witness someone from amnesty international um a judge from the international criminal court so lots of lots of different practitioners basically who are interested in these questions um and i think um they'll also be able to advise on you know, we're, we'll say, well, this is what we're thinking of doing. And probably some of the methods might be tweaked a bit as we go along. Um, but yeah, we're so grateful to have such an excellent advisory board um, helping out the project. I think that's a brilliant way to make sure, you know, ensure that a project is kind of grounded in reality as well, to have that advisory board as a resource to kind of, as a sounding board throughout, you know, I, I, I'm guessing, uh, you know, from the designing of the idea itself to, you know, uh, the, the choice of the methods and everything. I think that's brilliant. I guess we've been we've been chatting for a while now. Um, I, I wonder if we have time for, for one one last question, actually, which I was wondering about, um, which is around um, around the, the, the ethical considerations, whether you wouldn't mind saying a little bit about the key uh, perhaps some of the key ethical considerations when you were designing this research project that that came to 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 the foreground. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say, and I should have maybe mentioned this, but I think this is kind of interesting for the students. Is is um, the whole process of putting together a big grant application? Is you know there are just so many things to think of, um, and it really is quite a lengthy process. I think sometimes. You know, we see results that come out and oh, this person's research is in the news. Um, but we don't think about, OK, well, why did they choose to do it this way? Why did they exclude this method? Why didn't they have this? So, um, yeah, I look forward to in our class. Maybe this is something we can chat about a bit more. But the whole thing of like, how are you going to formulate a research question and then choosing the methods that empirically are going to help you answer that question? I mean, that's a basic point, but it's pretty tricky, you know, um, and, and yeah, so that's something to discuss in, in future uh, classes or maybe even future podcasts. Um, but in terms of the ethics, yes, I think there are two big aspects to the ethics. So the first is we're, we're dealing with human participants, right? So we have to make sure that their their consent is informed, that they know what they're signing up for, that they, um, they're happy to, to take part. And if they wish to withdraw at any time, of course, we have to enable that too. Um, so when you're dealing with the online experiment stuff, there's, you know, there's stuff to think about in terms of, okay, if we want to test for particular factors that are deemed to be sensitive data, be that like something like age or even political opinion. Um, well, how are we going to, you know, to, to, to store that information in a way that doesn't get linked back to the individual? And it's, you know, there are lots of different things to think about in, in terms of, of that side of it, the sort of the data yeah. management, but also the informed consent. And the second thing that's that was tricky and that I spent a lot of time thinking about was um, in the context of the mock jury simulation, first of all, how do you make it realistic? Because as we know, in these situations where we have juries, <laughs> um, people get called up. And uh, I know people have recently been called to sit on the jury and they haven't exactly been enthralled at the prospect of, of going and sitting on it. So how do you address this 
this question between you know people who volunteer to be part of the study and um making it realistic and sufficiently representative so the way we did that was basically making sure people get paid for their time and making sure you recruit from a broad selection of the population but then when you get them in there um you know creating a realistic case will involve showing a piece of user-generated evidence which may contain some disturbing footage so how do we do that in a way that's that's realistic. So uh, the way we, we decided to address that point was to say, OK, well, we won't show anything that's particularly distressing, you know, images of children um, being injured or obviously clearly very distressing. We'll probably use um, a piece of evidence like the aftermath of an airstrike, which is, of course, still very distressing, but we'll have trigger warnings in advance that people, when they're giving their consent, they know, OK, this is what I'm going to see. Um, and also blur out some faces to protect the, the privacy of the individuals in that piece of user generated content. Um, so, yeah, lots, so many ethical issues to think of. And when you think of one, then you think of 10 others. Oh, gosh, what if we did this? And we, um, so, yeah, uh, definitely something we can we can talk about in later um, podcasts and hopefully in person in the class. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, sorry. Yeah. There's one other thing that I should mention, um, which is, you know, there's a big push in science at the moment towards um, reproducibility of research. So yeah. um, there's there's an important sort of tension in a way here because, <clears throat> and the 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 way you do that, oh, the way you ensure that you're you know, others can check your data and check that the conclusions you've drawn are sound is to make all that data open and accessible. Um, but at the same time, of course, you have to find ways to anonymize the data. Uh, so yeah, those were things we I had to put a lot of thought into as well, um, making that yeah, yeah. data open. And that in turn, it's something we talk about in the class, but you know, there are now amazing banks of evidence of, of data that have been gathered in various um, projects that people could use, you know, rather than having to go in and um, reinvent the wheel and gather that data firsthand themselves, it might be that there's an existing data set that you can use for your research project. So we'll talk a little bit about that as we go along. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, I, I, I wish we could carry on chatting about this um but i think we we better leave it here and um i'm sure we'll come back to some of these themes uh, so i guess that is it from us at the methods cafe for this first episode anyway we hope you enjoyed the episode and if you can you, uh, you're more than welcome to share it with others you can subscribe so you get the next episode uh, straight away and you don't miss out but for now, it's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye. Bye. Ciao for now.